Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. I'm your host, Blair Hodges, and I'm thrilled to take you on this journey through time to meet the earliest disciples of Jesus. Together with esteemed Latter-day Saint scholars, we'll take a look at similarities and differences between ancient Christian faith and ours today. We'll challenge some common assumptions and gain a deeper understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So get ready to embark on a remarkable audio excavation back to the foundations of our faith. Let's meet the early day saints. Welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. We're joined today by Dr. Daniel Becerra from Brigham Young University. He's assistant professor of ancient scripture, and he contributed a chapter to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints. His chapter is called Becoming Like God, Incarnation, Moral Formation, and Eternal Progression. Daniel, welcome to Meet the Early Day Saints. Thanks. It's good to be here. So your chapter, as I said, Becoming Like God, this is an interesting topic. Did you choose it or did the editors approach you to do it? Um, I think the editors approached me because my research focuses on uh, moral formation, which is this idea of becoming better people. Uh, so it naturally fit into what I what I research in my specialty. How did you get interested in that particular topic? I mean, you were looking at ancient Christianity. Mm-hmm. Why that out of all of the things you could have looked at? Uh, I've always been keenly aware of the disparity between who I am and who I'd like to be, morally speaking. Um, and I, I wanted to become a scientist of, of bridging that gap, a, a scientist of virtue and uh, to cultivate all the resources I could to better understand what it looks like to to transform myself with the help of God into a better person. So I, I, I fell in love with early literature on this topic uh, written by early Christian saints, and I just saw there was an incredible goodness to it, incredible potential for for learning and expanding my own mind and my own spirituality. So um, that's how I kind of got into it. Latter-day Saints have a lot of different sources to pay attention to today. You know, we there's a ton of stuff in media available. It's like a kind of a glut of media, really. Right. I, I don't know that humans have ever had such an opportunity. <laughs> Books, right? And, but with even within the church, there's conference addresses and church mm-hmm. magazines and publications and blog posts. And we have a, hu- a larger canon of scripture than other Christians do. And so there's a lot of different sources. You've also looked at ancient sources. What has that done for you kind of on a, on a personal level that you've expanded the sources you're looking at to go deep into the past? Some people that think of restoration might not think that's necessary. Yeah, I mean, I, I guess one of the things is I've seen how much goodness is in traditions beyond our own. Uh, and this is something that we've also heard prophets and apostles saying, uh, but it hasn't been, it wasn't as clear to me uh, before I started studying the, the writings of people outside of our own tradition. Also, we just tend to think about um, things differently uh, in the modern age and as Latter-day Saints than ancient Christians did. And I think in understanding how they conceptualize what it means to become a better person, even if we don't agree with them, I think it can help us to tighten up our own thinking. It can expand our own thinking. And speaking personally, it it can help us to grow as disciples. So you're talking about what Christians thought, early Christians thought about becoming like God, what Mm -hmm. that meant. And you say it's a little tricky because the New Testament doesn't have fully developed teachings about it. Jesus didn't sit down and say, here's exactly what it means to be a child of God, or here's Mm -hmm. exactly what it means to be my disciple. He would call people. He would ask questions. Mm -hmm. We read in the New Testament, there's a lot of different ideas there. There's different gospel writers, and then Paul is writing. So how does a scholar like you go about looking at the New Testament text to figure out a general view 
of what it means to become like God. I mean, one way, of course, is just so we have the advantage of having all of the new 27 books of the New Testament uh, with us, you know, in totality as a compilation. Uh, not all early Christians had all the text. Uh, the process of canonization took centuries. Um, so we have the advantage of looking at um, where, uh, you know, Peter says this and where Paul says that and where Matthew says that and being able to systematize that uh, in a way that helps us see a kind of more comprehensive picture of what these different authors wanted to convey. Uh, so one way is just doing that work ourselves. Another is looking at the way in which early Christians sought to do that. Uh, and that's what I've largely done in this in this chapter as I've looked at how early Christian authors, theologians, you know, clergy, they took the scriptures and, and they used it, uh, used them to ask, answer the question, you know, what does it mean to become the kind of person I need to become? It seems really valuable in this book and the approach of this book in general and your chapter is it's not just telling us what early Christians thought that looks like Latter-day Saint belief right. or how Latter-day Saints are different mm. then. It's not just that simple. It's also looking at how early Christians got to their beliefs, mm. how they reasoned about things, how they used revelations, mm. how they processed things. And so it seems to me like what you were just describing is like you're trying to introduce us to these early Latter-day Saints that we can think along with them rather than correct them or be corrected by them, but rather to kind of uh, have a mutual exchange with them. Yeah, you're exactly right. Um, one of the things that we see throughout the history of uh, Christian literature is that they were using Scripture in the same way that we use Scripture. They were uh, appealing to their bishops and their priests in the same way that we appeal to ours. They were using their uh, their own kind of for lack of a better term, secular knowledge, like training in philosophy to better make sense of scripture and to better articulate it to people in language they understood. Uh, so we're very much brothers and sisters in our in our efforts to better understand scripture and apply it to our lives. And that's one thing I think all of the all of the chapters draw out. Additionally, uh, part of the project or part of the, the goal of this book was to study ancient Christians in the same way that we would want uh, other traditions to study us as Latter-day Saints with charity, with a, with a desire to understand, again, as opposed to judge or correct. That's really helpful. Okay, so your chapter breaks up into three different sections. It's looking at what it means to become like God, and it looks at that in past, present, and future terms. So let's talk about these in turn here, beginning with past. Mm -hmm. When people think about becoming like God, I think a lot of Latter-day Saints think about us becoming like God. How would that apply to the past? Yeah. Um, so the first way in which early Christians understood the process of becoming like God was in the, uh, as manifested in the person of D Jesus Christ through the incarnation. Uh, the incarnation is just a technical term that refers to Jesus becoming flesh, God becoming flesh. The work accomplished by Jesus in taking upon himself a human body and thereby uniting it with the divine attributes of immortality and incorruption. There's a, a prominent assumption throughout the New Testament and in the writings of early Christians that Jesus had both human and divine qualities, and this dual nature enabled him to uh, accomplish human salvation, right? Enabled him to accomplish the atonement. Uh, a guy named Justin Martyr, he was actually the first author. He died in uh, the mid-2nd century. He was the first to say explicitly that Christ's unique nature was what enables humans to uh, a human to become a god. This is the first time it's, it's stated so explicitly. And then within a decade or two after he lived, uh, you have a bishop named Irenaeus. Uh, he would famously teach that the Son of God, quote, became what we are in order to make us like himself. And then you see later authors echoing these same sentiments, sometimes focusing on the ways in which Jesus is fully human or partly or fully human or partly or fully divine. And then essentially making uh, this idea or essentially articulating this idea that the incarnation is the God who is Jesus deifying human nature 
by virtue of him taking upon himself a human body, he made human nature um, godly. And by virtue of that fact, he's able to help us uh, accomplish the same. Right. So these early discussions really look at not just humans becoming like God, but also God experiencing or becoming like human. And, mm-hmm. and they were thinking primarily about Jesus Christ yeah, exactly. coming into the world. And that, right. that word incarnation, you know, break that down. I'm a, I'm a carnivore. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Meets flesh, right? right, right? right. <laughs> so to be incarnated right. means to be like in flesh. Yeah, exactly. And so that's what they meant by this, right? Yeah. And was that kind of like the common earliest thinking about becoming like God? Was they, they first kind of wanted to understand that Jesus became like humans to then elevate humans? Yeah. I mean, you do have scriptures in, in both the Old and New Testaments which talk about humans as children of God or created in the image mm-hmm. of God or participating in divine nature. So I don't want to say that incarnation is the first way they thought about it, but it is one of the right. earliest ways they thought about it. Um, but there are different ways of conceptualizing divinization that were thought of uh, contemporaneously. Yeah, talk about some of those scriptural models you mentioned in the chapter when people are spoken of as being adopted or or sanctified or being made one and things like that. Yeah. So a lot of these scriptures seek to draw a kind of uh, parallel or genealogy between humans and God. So Genesis 126 and 127, God creates his images and likeness. Psalm 82, I have said you are gods and children of the most high. You know, Matthew 5, be ye therefore perfect as your father in heaven is perfect, which kind of assumes that we can become like he is. You have, uh, you know, Paul talking about being adopted as a child of God, uh, other authors talking about inheriting all that he has. So these were taken as kind of resources for the development of a theology of deification. What does it look like to follow the commandment to be perfect as God is perfect? And then they'd say, okay, Paul says this, you know, James says this, Matthew says this, and you start to see a kind of coalescing of principles related to this. Your chapter is also careful to point out where those ideas don't neatly map onto Latter-day Saint beliefs. I think a lot of Latter-day Saints just have the view of we're, we're literally children of God, spirit children of God, then we come and get a body, mm-hmm. etc. And you kind of point out we don't see that exact model in the text. We can read that back into scripture mm-hmm. and kind of use scripture to do that, but do you see that exact model in the text themselves? Um, it depends on who you ask. I think at least by and large, there was an assumption that there is a unbridgeable gap between creator and creation, which is to say, because we are created beings of God, we are not the same kind of species as he is, and we never will be. Uh, at the same time, there were some authors that believed in the beginning that we were, for all intents and purposes, the same being, uh, uh, participating in, in the being of God, and that at the end of this at the end of the cosmos, at the end of the universe, after the second coming, that we can return to that state um, so that that distinction is somewhat, uh, it disappears. Uh, but again, you have different authors uh, saying different things. Right, and they would even employ philosophy of the time. I think you point this out, that like the seed of God was literally in humans. In other words, there's substance, right. like humans participate in the actual substance of God. And they would not just appeal to scripture, but also to philosophy of the day as well. Yeah, and you see the same kind of thing in the Book of Mormon where uh, missionaries are talking to Lamanites and they say, you know, uh, God is the great spirit. Like the great spirit is a is a a concept that Lamanites understood. So they preach God in that way. Um, same thing with philosophy. Philosophy was a, a kind of a secondary education during the time. So uh, it, um, Christians would often put Christianity in philosophical language in a way for it to be, in order for it to be more intelligible to their audiences. Okay, great. So that kind of covers a little bit about deification or becoming like God looking at the past. Let's turn to the present now. And this is where you said is kind of your main interest, this moral formation, deification. And Jesus kind of becomes 
not just a person who was able to elevate humans, but also a model for humans to follow to help that happen. That's kind of what moral formation right. means, right? Yeah, exactly. Moral formation is is bridging the gap between who we are and who we should be. And Jesus Christ uh, being the only perfect example of a moral life, I think, is the, is the paragon of virtue in this respect. So in the past, we have this idea that Jesus comes down, he becomes uh, God, becomes human, and therefore enables humans to become God. Moral formation is the daily kind of grind involved in that process. It's cultivating virtue. It's overcoming vices. It involves a different kind of spiritual exercises like fasting and prayer and almsgiving. Uh, so if we were to in- envision uh, moral formation as akin to getting big muscles uh, or deification <laughs> as getting big muscles, that's the goal. Moral formation is going to the gym, right? What are you doing to, to kind of okay, work yeah. out those um, muscles? And in early Christianity, you have different kind of uh, ways of talking about it. Some people will ask questions like, are we inherently bad or inherently good or inherently neutral? What implications does that have for becoming a better person? So Augustine is a famous 3rd century, 4th century uh, theologian, for example. He believed in the idea that humans were so broken that we can't even want to do good without God's help. Whereas you have somebody like Pelagius who's saying, no, we're not that bad. We're actually inherently good. And the only thing that we need is, is for God to tell us what we do. And we have the willpower to be able to do it. So theologically, these looked a little bit different in the sense of what is the role of grace versus the role of human agency. Um, practically speaking, most Christians would agree that certain practices were necessary to both cultivate and reflect virtuous character. You know, they often went to the Beatitudes, you know, blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor in spirit. These are virtues that people should aspire to. I mean, if you look through the literature at the time, you have uh, Christians reflecting on different virtues like humility. So here's a quote from uh, the uh, text called The Sayings of the Desert Fathers, these monks who lived in the Egyptian desert. It says, you know, what is humility? It is to forgive a brother who has wronged you before he is sorry. Another one, it's good to show beneficence to all, but more so to those who are unable to return the favor. Another one, if trial does not come upon you, either openly or secretly, you cannot progress beyond your present measure. For all the saints, when they ask that their faith might be increased, entered into trials. So they're trying to envision and provide a map for what it looks like to become a better person. Like what are the signposts along the way uh, back to heaven? I was really moved by that part of your chapter. I haven't studied a lot about early monasteries, um, about these early people that would sort of go off into the desert or go off into solitary places and I mean, I guess to, I should confess it's because I've sort of been judgmental about yeah. that. I, I've, I've felt like, oh, that's, you know, I wouldn't want to do that. Yeah. Or, you know, why is that the way to become like God? You've actually found and you show in your book some value in looking at some of the things they discovered and in, in how moral formation works. Mm-hmm. Maybe say a little bit more about that. You've given us a few quotes from people, but it seems like this is something you spent a lot of time studying. Yeah, I, I suppose one of the most kind of transformative ideas for me was this idea that creation doesn't end in Eden. Uh, So, for example, there's an early Christian author named Origen, and he says that um, when God created um, humanity in his image and likeness, these two things are are different. The image is the potential for growth, and the likeness is the culmination of that potential. So while he blessed us with the image in the Garden of Eden, the likeness isn't achieved until we're in heaven. And just this idea that creation is an ongoing thing, that God is continually trying to form us in his image, I think is a beautiful thing. And it helps us to be attentive to the idea that, you know, uh, the purpose of the gospel is not to just have a testimony and it's not even to just follow the commandments. Like these are technologies or exercises that are geared towards helping us become the kind of people we want to be. Becoming is the goal. And this is the common thread throughout all of this early Christian discourse about moral formation. It's not about belief. It's not about action. It's about becoming uh, more Christ-like persons. 
Yeah, here's a quote from the book here. You say that um, there were men and women called monks. It comes from the Greek word. I'll let you say it because uh, yeah. I don't know how Monos. to Monos. Yeah. Okay, monohos, yeah. thank you. Yeah, it means solitary. And you say not all monks lived alone, however. Some lived together in communities called monasteries where they had all things in common, referring to the Book of Acts, and were governed by a set of moral and practical guidelines called a rule. These communities were viewed as laboratories for intellectual and spiritual formation, a kind of university of virtue, a paradigm of what heavenly life might be like. Many texts that contain the moral teachings of ancient Christian monks were treasured and passed down for generations, and they still survive today. Is that the kind of thing that you've you've spent a lot of time sort of looking at those rules and stuff? Yeah, absolutely. You mentioned some of the stuff that you got from them. What are some other examples of things from rules that, that you liked? I mean, another one is how much more, I don't want to say thoughtful, but how much more depth there are to their uh, reflection about certain spiritual exercises. So, so fasting, for example, there are different explanations for why fasting is useful. One is that physiologically, according to the science of the day, because the bowels happen to be very close in proximity to the genitals, that fasting was particularly used as a way to overcome lust, which would have been centered huh. in the genitals. By starving the belly, you starve the genitals, you starve the, the locust of lust. Uh, another was more symbolic. Uh, by fasting, uh, you symbolically obey the commandment that Adam transgressed to not eat. Uh, and by doing huh. so, you symbolically enter back into the Garden of Eden. By refraining from eating, you are refraining from getting yourself kicked out of the Garden of Eden. And in this sense, fasting is about proximity to God. It's about stepping away from this kind of first death. So these practices that we're not typically thoughtful about, or at least I wasn't, um, I mean, having this kind of more information, this, this, this greater depth to them has helped me relate to them, has helped me being more effective in my own spiritual practice. Mm. Yeah, I like I like the second one better than the yeah. first one when it comes to, <laughs> like the the Garden of Eden yeah. thing works a little yeah, bit better yeah. for me. So good. <laughs> Another thing that you bring up in this part is just like whether early Christians were sort of trying to figure out if our goal should be to kind of control our nature, yeah. or like get mastery mm -hmm. of it during uh, sort of do our best or if we are supposed to completely eradicate in, in any sort yeah, of negative yeah. stuff about Yeah, so there us, are two you know. technical terms that refer to kind of the goal of moral formation in life. Uh, one is metriapatheia, which is a, a moderation of vices, a moderation of passions, which essentially entails this idea that you're not going to ever completely escape temptation, but you've cultivated the ability to overcome it, right? You're still going to be pushed, but you're just not going to give in. Another one. That's me, yeah, by the way. So I'm I, a, I've, yeah. I've already made it. So. <laughs> Good. <laughs> yeah. Right. Okay. Sorry, guys. Another one is uh, apathy or apathy, which is a passionlessness or, or uh, in other words, you never, you, you, you've become such that you're not even tempted anymore. You've become such that you're not even liable to be tempted. Uh, Oh, wait, that one. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly. And that's that's say, the yeah. higher one, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Did people think they could really arrive at that state? Did some early Christians say, like, you can get there to not even, like, feel any kind of temptation? Yeah, uh, they did believe that uh, – some believe that through the process of transformation through the Holy Spirit that your desires could be cleansed mm. such that you're no more desire. You know, the vain things of the world or riches or fame or money or uh, illicit sexual relationships or anything like that. I think the, the individuals who may have claimed this are, are a little bit more few and far between, but mm. they did see it as an ideal. Some people saw it as ideal, but something that can only be attained after this life when we've kind of shedded the, you know, a problematic bodies and we're more spiritual beings. Mm. But yeah, it depends on who you ask, but some thought you could, some caught, thought you couldn't. Yeah, I really like digging into that because I think it shows the kind of thing that your chapter and this book does is it shows these different ideas and some might seem 
you know, there's some really unexpected mm. stuff. There's stuff that seems familiar mm. and it's not, you know, some of the unfamiliar stuff is really helpful. Some of the familiar stuff is unhelpful. Yeah. Like there's all kinds exactly. of, there's a lot happening that we can just really get into the ideas of this book. And it just causes us to reflect on the question, like, what exactly do we believe out of this? Like, do I believe I can completely yeah. overcome temptation? Yeah. Like, I don't think, I don't, if we can, I don't see that I'm happening. Not, yeah, I'm not, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. yeah, exactly. And by understanding that I can't, and there are general authority quotes and stuff that back this up, uh, it helps me to make realistic goals. It helps me to be more empathetic to right. other people who are weak. It helps me to, uh, you know, not have a problematic relationship with Christ when I continually feel like I'm, uh, you know, a bad person or something like that. Like by reflecting on these issues, it helps us to have a better, uh, more robust spiritual life, I think. Yeah, and, and some early Christians, as you point out, saw Jesus as empowering, like as sort of, becoming just showing a moral example so the moral exemplar type thing like go and do thou likewise type of a thing but also that there is some sort of boost or some sort of sacred assistance i guess that that a christian can get by trying to walk in that path you almost get the wind at your back kind of a thing. yeah exactly and all, i think all christians believe that uh you know grace or or divine help in some form was necessary to become a better person they they differed in, in terms of what form that took um, but all would believe that this is impossible without uh, Jesus Christ. And this is this constitutes the fundamental difference between Christian understandings of moral formation and more philosophical understandings. Whereas in most mm. philosophical systems, the assumption is that we have all the tools necessary to be the kind of people we need to be independent of anyone else. With Christianity, mm -hmm. that's just not the case. Like we need God. Moral formation is a relational thing um, and we can't do it without, without his grace. And then Christianity also looks to... Uh becoming like God as a future thing, something that happens mm -hmm. in the future. And Latter-day Saints talk about eternal progression. Early Christians had different views about what happened after death. And, you know, some of the questions are like, does the process of becoming like God continue after death? Is it fulfilled at death? Mm -hmm. This is a future-oriented view of deification. What do you see from early Christians on this? Yeah, in, in, in most moral discourse in early Christianity, the end goal is either to kind of regain the state that humanity had in Eden, you know, the kind of pristine state that as they understood it, or to prefigure the, the yeah, heaven, right? So you're looking back, you're looking forward. Uh, when you look forward, uh, I, I highlight two authors specifically and what they understood to happen. So one author is Origen. I mentioned him before. Uh, he understood uh, a degree of progression to occur after this life, but this the degree of progression would eventually have an end. The progression itself, though, entailed uh, learning about. So after this life, you kind of go to our spiritual university where you learn about the cosmos and why some planets are here and why stars are this far from one another. So you learn about the creations of God in, in all their in all their splendor and fullness and things like that. So you're becoming like God in the sense that your your mind is starting to conform to his and what you understand and how you see the world. Over the course of, you know, however long this takes, as you're becoming more like God, there's a point at which you're, you're finally so like him that you become one with him. Uh, he talks about it as being unified in mind, uh, but really it, it's unified in the most fundamental aspect of your being. There is no longer any diversity between you and God because you are such that you're just the same, right? And in that sense, you become sated. You no longer look anywhere else but to him. Uh, so in that sense, progression ends. There's another guy named Gregory of Nyssa who believes something a little bit different. He bought into this idea that humanity, by virtue of being created, is fundamentally different from God. We can never become like him in the fullest sense. But God created us with an infinite capacity for growth. Um, so what he argued is that after this life, we're going to perceive God for who he is uh, a little bit better than we do now. And then we're going to progress towards becoming Mike him a little bit more. And as we progress, we see how much more there is to know. 
Uh, so the more we learn about him, the more we realize how, that, how much there is to learn. And because he's infinite and we're infinite, this progress is just going to keep happening and keep happening and keep happening. Because we can never yeah, – like the horizon keeps yeah, going exactly. back. Like you, you can't get to the horizon. Right. Uh, but we just keep learning. We keep becoming better. We keep thirsting after him more uh, and we grow for eternity essentially. What do you think Latter-day Saints would be more drawn to uh, on average? Like those are pretty – I mean they're, they're pretty different views but I don't know. I like the idea of there being an end. <laughs> just because it's like yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, like i'm tired I know, seriously <laughs> like if i'm tired now i can't imagine like uh, um but i also i mean i think joseph smith said something to this effect but by virtue of the fact that you know as we progress so god grows in glory there's a sense in which yeah. he's always going to be above us but i don't think that sense i don't think that's in, in terms of like likeness or virtue i think we can become like him once our our thoughts and our desires and our emotions are purified to a certain degree. Yeah, it's sort of like any goodness we can achieve is just added to the net right. result of all goodness mm -hmm. that stems from God's right. love or whatever. Yeah. Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm personally I don't think as much anymore about the future thing of it. I used to be more focused on that. I, I really focus now in in my discipleship more about today, yeah. more about the moral formation mm -hmm. stuff. I think there's just so many questions about what happens after that. Um, yeah, I, I'm I'm ready to just kind of focus right. on what it means for me, <laughs> yeah. like in the moment. I'm hoping heaven will be a happy surprise. I'm just like, oh, that's nice. Like you you focused your whole life yeah. on just trying to be a good person to love God and love others, and then what happens yeah, happens. Right. <laughs> yeah, whatever yeah. that looks like. Yeah. yeah, that's right. So Latter-day Saints, I think, should be aware as they're going through this chapter in this book that sometimes some of our perspectives might be challenged or might have a, something different offered to us. One example here, and you touched on this earlier, is there's a quote from ancient church fathers. I remember hearing this as a missionary and being like, oh, wow, they were just like mm -hmm. us. It says, uh, God became man so that man could become gods. You mentioned yeah. that earlier. And people might remember Lorenzo Snow's famous couplet, as man now is, God once was, mm -hmm. as God now is, man may become. And and I've seen some Latter-day Saint scholars basically equate those things uh, to say like, oh, see these early Christians, you know, Joseph Smith restored this yeah, ancient yeah. knowledge. Mm -hmm. And your book kind of uh, gives a different view of that. Yeah, I mean, insofar as I understand it, there are two significant theological differences between that ancient statement by Irenaeus and then later repeated by Athanasius and others and our, our modern conception uh, kind of embodied in, in Lorenzo Snow. And the first relates to the identity of God. Like when these ancient authors spoke of God becoming human, they were referring to the incarnation of Jesus Christ, like we talked about, right? But Lorenzo Snow, he seems to be referring to God the Father and alluding to a statement given right. by Joseph Smith in King Fallen Discourse that God was once uh, how we are now, right? And he became a God by going through mortality and things like that. Uh, this isn't considered a, a doctrinal standard in the LDS tradition, and, and leaders haven't speculated further on the idea of Heavenly Father's kind of humanity before becoming a God. And again, the second difference is, is, is this idea that some of these ancient authors, they understood God uh, and humans as different species, um, all the, albeit at different points of development, right? So while these ancient authors believe that humans could become immortal and incorruptible like God, they didn't understand these divine attributes to be proper to our nature. They were something that were right. kind of mediated to us through Christ, but they weren't part of our genetic makeup, so to speak, um, which I think – Yeah, like it's like getting hit by sunbeams or right. something, right? Like you don't become part of the sunbeams. Exactly. You're, it's just reflecting yeah, on you. Yeah, exactly. And that might be the primary distinction. We believe as Latter-day Saints that we are literally the spiritual children of Heavenly Father. And therefore, God-likeness is in our spiritual genes. 
Um, yeah. yeah, the the gospel topics essay about becoming like God is interesting in kind of the church taking an official position of not having an exact position on God the Father, mm-hmm. whether God the Father had a mortal yeah. life or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, we the church obviously believes that in in Jesus Christ that happened, right. like Christ, mm-hmm. according to the church, descended below all things, took on a body, de- died, was resurrected, like did the whole thing. Yeah. So, I, I think that's I think that's important for Latter Day Saints to keep in mind that even within the horizons of our beliefs. There are kind of different views that that people are welcome to right. have. And uh, and just as with early Christians, there were people that kind of had some mm-hmm. different ideas about this. The way I kind of gauge it is like, what does it mean for my life today? Right. What, what does that call me to do mm-hmm. now? And I kind of try to judge that doctrine according to like what seems to be the way of Christ. Like what what mm. actions do those beliefs inspire in me? Mm. You know, that's how I would kind of, rather mm. than what is metaphysical. Right, correct? right, exactly. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right, right. And I mean, one of the things I appreciate too is in that ambiguity is it, it, it opens up space for us to explore different possibilities. And even if we go down an avenue of inquiry, which doesn't ultimately pan out, we still gain experience and knowledge and ability to better articulate our own views by virtue of that journey, right? So if some things aren't clear, there is no uh, injunction against exploring different possibilities. In fact, I think we're expected to, right? And I think that's part of living a good life is looking at what might be the case uh, when we're uncertain about what exactly is the case. Mm. I like that. That's Daniel Becerra. He's an assistant professor of ancient scripture at Brigham Young University, received a PhD in religion and a master's in religious studies from Duke University, a master's of theological studies in New Testament and early Christianity from Harvard Divinity School, and way back in time, a bachelor's in ancient Near Eastern (laughs) studies from Brigham Young University. I guess not too far back in time. time. (laughs) 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 All right. Well, we appreciate you joining us, Daniel. This was this was really great. I I really like this chapter a lot. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Meet the Early Day Saints, a Wayfair Magazine short audio series. Each guest is a contributor to the book Ancient Christians, an Introduction for Latter-day Saints from the Neil A. Maxwell Institute for Religious Scholarship at BYU. If you enjoyed this interview, don't miss the others in this series. You can learn more and subscribe to Wayfair Magazine at wayfairmagazine.org. Thanks to our sponsor, the Faith Matters Foundation, who promotes an expansive view of the restored gospel. And if you're looking for an expansive view, I also recommend my podcast, Fireside with Blair Hodges. It's where we fan the flames of curiosity about life, faith, culture, and more. You'll hear great interviews with incredible people that will really take you by surprise. Fireside with Blair Hodges is available anywhere you get your podcasts and also at firesidepod.org. I hope to see you there by the fire.